Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. More than one of you after church last week told me you felt like I was preaching straight to you. Now, usually that thrills a preacher as vain as I am. But with our series topic, Sibling Rivalry, it's just sad. Being at odds with sister or brother is painful. And according to Genesis, that's the pain that marks our humanity. We do strange things with the Noah story in our culture. It has animals in it, so we decorate children's space with it. The story pleases the environmentally conscience because God goes out of his way to preserve all the endangered species. That great theologian, Garth Brooks, got in on the act when he sings, Old Noah took much ridicule for building his great ark, but after 40 days and 40 nights, he was looking pretty smart. The thing is, there is terror in this story. God wipes out every land-born creature. Sea creatures did fine, I suppose, but that just adds to the terror. Because in the Bible's imagination, the sea is where you go to drown or get eaten. But things are worse than that. In Genesis, the first day of creation sees God separate light and dark. Let there be light. But all there is, is water. In the biblical imagination, the sky is water. And so on day two, God separates water from water, and there is earth and sky. On day three, dry ground arises. On day four, vegetation. And so when the world becomes nothing but water, it means God has collapsed back days two, three, and four of creation. Watery chaos again. What's to stop God from ending, let there be light? ending creation altogether. It's enough to make you stop and think. We didn't have to be here. If you played the odds, we shouldn't be here. Scientists agree the chances of there being a planet like ours with a species like ours on it is vanishingly small. One in billions. And here we are. Do we even notice how lucky we are? I told you about my stepmother's death over Christmas. One day, my father wakes up next to his wife of 40 years. She's sick, but alive. The next day, he wakes up alone. It's just so strange to be married to nothing but memories. We don't stop and give thanks often enough for the next breath. So, life's a gift. Why did God take it away from all these creatures? We heard about sibling rivalry last week. Cain murdering Abel and then Cain marked to wander the earth. One of you asked, is it really all that merciful for God to spare Cain? I mean, can, Cain can't make a living anymore. He's a farmer. Wouldn't death have been more merciful? I am here for that sort of smart question. Bless you. Well, Cain founds the first city named for Enoch, his son. Sobering for us city dwellers, the first city was founded by the first murderer. 
Adam and Eve have more children. They fill the earth and multiply as commanded. You know what else they fill the earth with? Violence. Cain is not the only murderer. So Genesis 6 begins with one of the saddest lines I've ever read. Not just in the Bible, but anywhere. The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth. And his heart was saddened. Have you ever despaired of your fellow human beings? You're not alone. In the movie American History X, Beverly D'Angelo plays a mom whose son has become a white supremacist, played by Ed Norton. And she shrieks at him at one point, I'm ashamed you came out of my body. That's God in Genesis 6. And looking at our history of imitating Cain, you can understand. Now, it's important not just to us Christians, but also to our Jewish siblings, to our Muslim cousins, that God never changes. If you change, you either go from better to worse or from worse to better, and either way, God can't. But these stories in Genesis depict a more human-like God. So in Genesis, God doesn't know things, gets surprised, needs reassurance. Now, we don't think this is true theologically, looking at the whole of the scriptures and the Christian tradition, but let's let Genesis speak for itself. God is learning how to be God here. I mean, where do you get training for that sort of thing? Except on the job. So first, God creates Adam and Eve. They get one really simple rule. Ten minutes later, they break it, they blame each other, and they hide from God. We've been doing the same ever since. Their son Cain kills their son Abel, and the curse spreads. Violence floods in, and God hates violence. God will not have it. So God says this, I'm going to start over with better people this time, people who will behave. Let's make a whole new humanity. Now, some of the sweetest news you can ever hear is that you get a do-over. If something has gone terribly wrong, the gospel is mercy. You get a fresh start. You golfers call it a mulligan. Computer people, a hard reset. Whatever you call it, God takes one of those and says, I'm starting a new humanity, and it's going to go better this time. It's kind of like the person who comes out of a divorce and goes into another marriage, and you're not sure they realize they're taking themselves with them into this new marriage. You know the other person wasn't the whole problem, <laughs> right? Hope abounds. Now, maybe a better illustration. You probably know Michelangelo's great sculpture, the Pietà. Mary holding her dead son. T.S. Eliot said he became a Christian when he laid eyes on that and fell to his knees because he thought, if there is that much beauty in the world, it all must be true. Well, an older Michelangelo tried to sculpt it again late in his career, and he hated the result. He destroyed it. It's not quite as good, is it? Sometimes even our greatest creatives miscarry. Here's the thing. It didn't belong to him to destroy. 
It belongs to all of us. And so someone came and put it back together and you can go see it. Although I'm not sure how many people have converted on the spot from seeing the second draft. So think of God, like Michelangelo, only the bad one comes first. And like any artist, he tears up that first draft and makes a better one. So in the story of Noah, there is one perfect family on earth. They do what God asks. They do no violence. Noah is blameless and righteous and finds favor with God. And God tells him, all right, I plan to wipe out the earth 40 days and 40 nights of rain. I want you to build a boat. And in some of the stories, it's two of every animal. In some of the stories, it's seven couples of each species. Either way, that's a big boat. They will bob along, going nowhere in particular, until the flood recedes. Now, one of you told me in Bible study this week, talking about this passage, you remember learning this in Sunday school and how much hope you found. Because at the end of the flood, Noah sends out a dove, and it comes back with nothing in its beak. Sends it out again, and it comes back with an olive branch, a sign of land and of new life. Sends it out a third time, and it doesn't come back at all. It's found a place to nest. That's life for every species. And all of us creatures disembark into a whole new creation. And we're commanded, and we do, fill the earth and multiply. And God puts a rainbow in the sky as a promise never to purge the earth again. God is sorry for the second time in this story. Yeah, violence is bad, but so is wiping everyone out. And so now every rainbow is a promise of life in the face of death. No wonder oppressed groups seize on this symbol to show how much God cherishes them. All good. Does that sound familiar? You've heard that story before. Are you with me? All right. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out that Noah is called righteous. Okay. So why doesn't he argue with God? Abraham would do that later. God says, I'm going to wipe out that city. And Abram says, no, 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 you you can't, God. There there might be good people in this city. You, You don't want to kill the good people with the bad. And God backs off. He does the same with Moses. God says to Moses, I'm going to kill those people. That's my translation of the Hebrew. And Moses says, wait, 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 God, no, no, you you don't want to kill them. I mean, you brought them up out of the land of Egypt, remember? And God backs down. Real righteousness in the Bible is not being better than everybody else. It's advocating with God on behalf of those who are in trouble. Noah is shown as better than everyone else. And so we should notice, wipe out the earth, check, good plan, God, I'll get busy building a boat. Is that really righteous? I love getting to know how people have come to our church. Some of you got here generations ago. You came with grandparents long gone. Some of you got here minutes ago. Your very first time here this morning. And praise God, let's make our life together and learn from one another, like all the animals in the ark. Now, some of you come, like me, from more conservative Christian settings even sectarian ones. Now, a sect is a group that thinks only it is correct. Everyone else is going to the place with the people with the pointy sticks. 
My wife has a cousin who grew up Roman Catholic, but is now Assemblies of God, Pentecostal. He likes his church, but his church is headquartered in Springfield, Missouri, where he lives. And he says, okay, when I was Catholic, I got that we were the one true church. We were headquartered at Rome, after all. But if you think you're the one true church, should you really be headquartered in Springfield, Missouri? Doesn't seem like an ideal choice. All of you from small town Ontario are now glaring at me with daggers. Well, the whole history of Protestantism is of a small group within a church saying, you guys aren't really a church. We're going to come over here and start a real church, a good one this time. And then 10 minutes later, someone in that group is saying, you're bad. We're going to come over here and start a real church this time. That's, I just gave you 500 years of history in the West like that. The United Church of Canada was founded to go in the other direction, to put Humpty back together, to gather up these remnants and make one church anew. But if you have a memory of being in a sectarian church, you may know that feeling. We're the good ones. Everyone out there, they're all bad, like Noah's family in the ark. Well, here's how Rabbi Sachs reads the story. That's a really dangerous thing to think. Whatever stripe of Christian or Muslim or Jew you are, only we are good, everyone else can go hang. Atheists can be that way too. So can good liberals. Why isn't the world as enlightened as we are? I mean, I feel that looking at some cultures, right? Like, I wish they would have democracy, capitalism, minorities' rights, all the things that we prize in Western culture. Let's bomb them until they become as enlightened as we are. That's U.S. foreign policy, last 75 years. And that's Noah talking. It's the way to religious arrogance and even violence. All right, God, how's it work out with this one holy man, this one perfect family? So perfect that when God wanted to drown everybody, God couldn't bring himself to drown Noah. Instead, making of Noah a whole new humanity, born again. Well, the flood's over. Noah plants a vineyard drinks some wine, and gets hammered. So drunk, he passes out naked. I don't know how drunk you have to be to take off your clothes before you black out, but I'm guessing that's pretty blitzed. So this is your perfect specimen, y'all. The best person on earth, passed out naked. Don't look at the slides. I do not have an image for your edification. That was funny. That's the best I'm going to do today. Noah's son Ham sees his father naked and tells his brothers. Now, it's not clear in the story why this is such a heinous offense. So the rabbis wonder about this. Maybe Ham mocked his naked father. Or maybe he abused his naked father. My favorite interpretation is he went around telling of his father's nakedness to other people. That is, spreading the family's shame, giving a bad report. Or maybe it's just that the Bible respects the human body enough to say we should cover up and avert our eyes. That's a countercultural thing to say in our pornographic culture. Well, whatever it is, Shem and Japheth put a garment on their shoulders, creep backwards over their father, and cover him without looking at him. Noah wakes up and curses not just Ham, his son, but Cain and his grandson, and everyone else who will come after them in their line. 
in Judaism, fathers are supposed to bless their children. So lots of Jewish people will talk about this as their favorite part of being Jewish. The children line up at Shabbat dinner, the father places his hands on them, and says a blessing. Well, Noah does the opposite. He curses his child, and his child's child, forever. So how's your plan going for a hard reset, God? Your best human, 10 minutes after the ark lands, is drunk, naked, and cursing his grandchildren. Well, that didn't work out. Now later, God will choose one family, Abram and Sarah's family, through whom to bless the whole world. The Jewish people today are still busy at that task. We Christians are adopted by faith in Jesus Christ into this same family, trying to bless the world. But at this point in Genesis, God is depicted as still trying to figure out how to work redemption, how to repair everything we creatures have ruined. Adam and Eve, one simple rule, doesn't work. Noah, hard reset, doesn't work. This is a failed experiment in salvation. So much God promises never to do it again, however much we deserve it. The rainbow is a sign that God has learned patience. Like maybe more patience than I wish God would have, right? But God promises to be patient with us. Now God will have the world God wants without our violence. Sarah and Abraham's children, by birth and by faith, will be the way God gets that world. Now, this story has even more terror about it than I've let on. You've heard the PG-13 version, now here's the R-rated version. Slaveholding cultures used this story for centuries to justify the slave trade. Ham's children populate Africa on the Bible's map. Two of Canaan's children are Mitzrayim and Cush, that is, Egypt and Sudan. So justifiers of slavery pointed to this story to say why black people should be slaves forever. Now let's be very clear. The real reason for slavery was it made some people absurdly rich, trading in other people's labor and flesh. But justification came from this story. So this story has blood on its hands. We human beings can take anything good and make with it something ruinous. Even the Bible. Even God. But you probably didn't need me to tell you that. You know that we can take anything and ruin it. You might need me to tell you why we should learn from this book when it tells stories that enslaved people for centuries. You didn't come here for bad news, did you? You came here for good news. So what's the good news? What the Bible is doing is explaining the Israelites' world. It takes a story to make a people, any people. Because we human beings ask questions like, who are we? Who are those guys over there who don't like us? What's our world like? Well, Egypt, Mitzrayim, was a place of slavery for us, for us Israelites. Pharaoh is a tyrant from whom God liberates slaves. This story explains the Israelites who are telling the story how they came to be enslaved. If anyone was accursed, it was God's own people. And then God worked to end the curse with Moses' liberation and the Exodus. Okay, fine. 
That's good for history class. What about church? Well, in church, there's also a curse, but it's on all humanity. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell. Their descendant, Jesus Christ, rose. He broke the curse. We sang about it at Christmas. Do you remember? He comes to make his blessings known. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Okay, I'll leave the singing to them. That's what we're singing about. Christ's blessing breaks the curse. Like Shem and Japheth covering their father, Christ's mercy covers our shame. If you like, Christ curses the curse, undoes it. Its power is gone, and he covers us with blessing. What Genesis does here is it lays bare Noah's sin, our sin, our cursedness, so Christ can cover it up and teach us how to bless one another again. When my southern forebears used this story to justify slavery and the plantation, they were reading their Bible badly. You can have the thing memorized in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic and make a hash of it if you use it to hate people. Because the Bible also forbids kidnapping, on which the slave trade was based, people stealing, and treating your fellow human beings like property or animals. In the Bible, we are commanded that slaves be released on the year of Jubilee. Everyone gets their freedom back. That didn't happen too often in South Carolina, I'm here to tell you. Africa is the first place of the gospel's blessing. The good news of Jesus Christ spread first in the Bible to Africa and later to other continents. I hope you're hearing me on this. Christianity, we are an Asian religion and a Jewish renewal sect that spread first to Africa. I don't think that's normally how our story gets told out there, does it? And from Africa came our first great intellects, Origen, Tertullian, Augustine, and more. Today, Africa is the place with the greatest fertility and growth in the church. And here's what Scripture says about Africa. It's a land of blessing. Here's what Scripture says about slavery. God chooses slaves and not the oppressor. And here's what Scripture says about curses. They're broken. I was on a ski slope once and saw two skiers almost bump into each other. One lost her balance a little. The other kept going. And the one who lost her balance was near enough to me I could hear her scream, I hope you fall down, hit your head, and die. Now that is a proper curse. Not just a naughty word, but trying to affect reality, right? I could hear you gasp when I said it. Blessings work the same way. With a blessing, you change reality. Any of you teachers know this. If you praise a student, it can change their whole life. If you curse someone, it can damage their entire life. Noah is the perfect cursor. Jesus Christ doesn't just command us not to curse. He swallows all of our curses and gives us back nothing but blessings. Now, I've already told you that Scripture is implicitly criticizing Noah and any notion of ourselves as all good and others as all bad. Lots of religions do this. They're not reading their Scripture well. Noah 
is the opposite of Jesus Christ. Noah, the supposedly one righteous man from whom will come a whole new humanity, fails miserably, drunk and naked and cursing. Jesus, the one righteous man from whom will come a whole new humanity, fails, crucified, naked. But he's not cursing, is he? He even refuses the offer of wine that the soldiers make to ease his pain or to mock him. He is blessing those who crucify, blessing the whole world with salvation. We human beings gave the worst we could do to the best person, a slow agonizing death. And he transfigures the world through that death into blessing for his crucifiers. That's the gospel. Do you know we Christians even made Christ's cross into a Noah-like curse? For centuries we said the Jews crucified Jesus, and so they are perennially cursed. God forgive us. We read our Bible wrong. All of humanity's sins, yours and mine, put him on that cross. And in response, he blesses his crucifiers, his own Jewish family, and even us Gentiles. There is no curse anymore, either for Ham or for Canaan or for Jesus' own Jewish family or anybody else. All there is is resurrection. What more? Well, there's sibling rivalry here too, but it's muted a little. Shem and Japheth cooperate to cover their father. Shem in the Bible is the founding father of the Arabian Peninsula and its peoples, Ham of Egypt, Japheth of Asia Minor, basically Turkey. Some of the most volatile places in the world today, in the headlines. These are siblings. Our Jewish siblings point this out. Every human being came through the ark together. We were all on that boat. All of us are descended from Noah and his family. We survived the flood. The rainbow shows us God wants life and not death. And so oppressed groups cling to that promise. The reason for the flood in the first place was violence. Take note, the answer to violence is peace. So lots of wise heads put it this way, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. And the most creative movements for social change in the 20th century were nonviolent movements. Gandhis and kings and the fall of apartheid and the fall of the Berlin Wall. In all of them, you had to be willing to suffer and to refuse to do violence, to be like Jesus. Now, the ark has long been taken as an image for the church. And despite some qualifications offered here, you can see why. If you're in the building this morning, you can look up and see we make our roof to look like an upside-down boat. That's for a reason. This room is called the nave of the church. It's where we get our English word navy. It's a nautical term. You and I are in the boat of life together. There's a joke about this. There's a joke about everything in church land. You couldn't stand the smell inside the ark except for the storm outside the ark. It's a place of salvation, but it's not an easy place. We've had lots of new people join our church recently. More of this, God. I almost feel like I need to warn them, we'll hurt you. We don't mean to. It's just what happens 
when you're cooped up in here for weeks. And not just you, but the bobcats next to the chickens and the hippos and the baby ducks. And for all of that, it's sort of beautiful, isn't it? All of us creatures being saved together, whether we would have chosen this way or not, a promise of life in the face of death. A life we see in full in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. The opposite of Noah. Noah lives while everyone else dies. Christ dies so everyone else 